0: before Easter, we started looking at what Paul had to say to the Corinthian church about Christian liberties. And in chapters 8 and 9, Paul gives us a very important principle that if you're going to exercise a Christian liberty, you need to understand this principle. And that principle is that knowledge must be balanced by love. Our knowledge for the different Christian liberties that, that we have, it needs to be balanced by love for believers, by love for the lost in chapter eight, Paul uses this principle to challenge us that our knowledge of Christian liberties must be balanced uh, by our love for believers, because if our knowledge of our liberty in any way causes a believer to stumble, we need to love them enough not to do it. In chapter nine, Paul expounds it and he says, You know what? If our liberty in any way were to cause an unbeliever to be hindered from accepting the gospel, then don't participate in that liberty so allow love for the believers love for the unbelievers to ultimately guide whether or not you do a liberty or not now this morning we're going to look at first corinthians chapter 10 And Paul here in this chapter is going to conclude his thoughts on uh, this topic of Christian liberties. And in this chapter, Paul is going to give us two more principles. So the first two chapters, he gave us this principle of knowledge must be balanced by love. Here in this chapter, we'll get two more principles on how we should exercise our Christian liberties. But one of the biggest reasons why we don't is because of different temptations that come, uh, especially the temptation of being selfish. And so he's going to deal with... uh, temptation and he's going to share some really good insights uh, on temptation in this chapter for us as well and so in chapters 8 and 9 Paul tells us you know we need to be willing to lay down our liberty because of love and now here at the start of chapter 10 Paul's going to tell us you know what Look at what happens if you're not willing. And in order to do that, he's going to give us a little history lesson of Israel. He's going to highlight some of Israel and, and how God delivered them from the Exodus of Egypt, but also their response and some of the disobedience they had to help us realize, you know what, when you're not willing to obey God, when you're not willing to put into practice these principles, there are consequences that come to our life. And so, you know, it's been wisely said, those who do not learn from from history are doomed to repeat it, and Paul now is going to start with some history of Israel, hoping that we don't repeat the failure that they did. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 10, says this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So, Paul starts off in this history lesson of reminding us the way in which God miraculously delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. And he highlights three miraculous things that God did. First, God's miraculous direction. Second, God's miraculous protection. And then God's miraculous provision. Paul starts with God's miraculous direction here. And he says, all of our fathers were under the cloud. When Israel left uh, e- uh, Egypt, God directed them in the day with this pillar of cloud, at night with the pillar of fire. And so, you know, God was giving them this miraculous direction, which was a wonderful thing. And he led them to the Red Sea. And we're told that on each side of them were mountains, and then on one side was the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden, the Egyptian army comes from the other side, and their response to God's direction was, you know, you just let us out here ultimately to kill us, God. You know, why don't you just let us die in Egypt? Now you bring us here, and we're going to die. And so their response to his direction is that. And then God does something uh, very amazing at that moment, who protect them, God parts the Red Sea. And that's why, uh, Paul tells us all passed through the sea. And so this Egyptian army is coming. God parts the Red Sea and all the nation of Israel walks through on dry land and the Egyptian army keeps pursuing them into the sea and God closes it in and destroys and kills that whole army. Now after the Israelites made it through the Red Sea, they start wandering in the wilderness and there's not much food in a wilderness. There's not much to drink in a wilderness. And so they start complaining to Moses. And once again, it's, oh, we have this food and drink in Egypt and now God brought us out in the wilderness just so we could starve to death. And so God provides miraculous food, manna from heaven, and he provides miraculous water from a rock in order to provide for their uh, food and for their water. And so The third thing that speaks about Israel is the miraculous provision. That's why Paul says they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. And so Paul reveals, you know, God miraculously directed, he miraculously provided and protected. And they didn't respond so well to all of what God did. And Paul tells us in verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered In the wilderness. You know, most of them here when he says that it's probably one of the biggest understatements in all of Scripture, because of all of the adult generation that left Egypt, only two people made it to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. So most of them is, yeah, pretty much all of them. Uh, And so, you know, and the reason that Joshua and Caleb were allowed to go into the promised land, because you know, the nation of Israel were whiners and complainers, but at the end of the day, that's not what kept them out. What kept them out was unbelief. God said, I'm gonna give you this promised land. And they said, send out spies, 10 of them come back and say, man, these people are huge. There's no way we can take this land. Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can do it. We trust the Lord. He promised us this. And the people sided with the 10 and said, we're not going to do this. God can't handle this. And so he doesn't allow any of that generation to go into the promised land, but Joshua and Caleb can, because they believe that God could do what he promised to do. So Paul starts with this history lesson, but now he's going to get more to a specific point. He's going to share with us two sins that in this time in the wilderness, Israel committed that he's warning us not to be uh, duplicating in our own lives. Verse 6 says this, Now these things became our examples to the extent that we would not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. As in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul starts off here saying, now these things became our examples. Paul is saying, hey, we can and we should learn from the failure of the Israelites here in the wilderness. They they did two specific things, two sins, that we should learn from so that we don't follow this bad example that they set for us. And those two sins are, the first one, they sinned in that they wouldn't say no to their lusts. Paul wants us to learn from that bad example, and so he says, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then Paul gives a few examples of their, you know, The fact that they wouldn't say no to their lust, they committed sexual immorality, so they wouldn't say no to that sexual lust in their life. They tempted Christ, they complained about God or against God. And so the Israelites are are disobedient to God's law, and they have complaining hearts, which reveals that they're really just kind of self-focused. It's all about their own desires. It's not about obeying God. It's just about you know fulfilling their own lusts. And so they're not willing to say no to their lusts, and yes, To obedience to God. Now, the reason that Paul brings this up as an example that we shouldn't follow is because this is really at the heart of what the problem is here with Christian liberties. You see, really, the reason why people aren't willing to exercise their Christian liberties properly is because they're not willing to say no to their own lustful desires. They're not willing to say no to these selfish things that they want, instead, say, you know what, I'd rather be obedient to God in this. They're saying, I'm just going to do it because it pleases me. I don't care how it impacts anyone else. And that's kind of at the heart of the problem of why Christian liberties are exercised in a sinful way. And so he's bringing up this example to say, look at how Israel acted in this negative way. Don't you guys do it because you are doing it right now in the way in which you're exercising your Christian liberties. And notice with each one of those examples, Paul reveals how God punished them. Every time Israel does these things to pursue their own flesh, to pursue their own lust there are consequences that come from God because they disobey God and pursue these things and so Paul wants us to see this and understand it and so the first thing that Israel you know had as a sin that we shouldn't do is they're not willing to say no to their own lust the second way that Israel sinned is that they became idolaters Paul wants us to learn from this bad example and so he says and do not become idolaters as were some of them now Paul gives this example about idolaters, um, and he says, As it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Now, if you just read that, you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with idolatry? Okay, they ate, they drank, and they rose up to play. I don't see anything about idolatry there. But notice the first three words, as it is written, or actually uh, four words. Whenever you see as it is written, it's focusing back to an Old Testament passage. Here, it's quoting Exodus 32.6. Now, in Exodus 32, you have Moses who's up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and right at the beginning of Exodus 32, he hasn't come down for a while, and the people come to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, we want you to build us, make us a god. And so he says, all right, give me all your gold, and then he creates the golden calf. Uh, and then he tells them, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. I mean, you know, the, the mindset of idolatry is so foolish. I mean, obviously, the true God delivered them, opened the Red Sea, brought them there. And now he's like, okay, here's your God. He's the one who did it, this golden calf. And then after that, he says, we're going to have a feast to this new God that we have created. And we're going to do it tomorrow. Well, that's where we come to Exodus 32, 6, which says this. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So the context of this is in the midst of this idolatry and worshiping the golden calf. And so that is the example that Paul is giving here when he's speaking about this. And he's saying, hey, remember their idolatry in the nation of Israel when God just delivered them, did all this, miraculously provided food and water. And Moses has only gone on the mountain for, you know, 40 days and they can't wait that long. And all of a sudden they, you know, make their own God and they start worshiping it. Now, the reason Paul brings up this idolatry as an example that we shouldn't follow is because if you remember back in chapter 8, the big example that he's using for Christian liberties is whether or not you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Well, we're going to see here in chapter 10 that some of the Corinthian Christians who were exercising this liberty, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, all of a sudden started participating in the ceremonies of idol worship as well and actually just started worshiping idols with those in Corinth. And so this actually became a problem. This liberty led to idolatry, and that's the reason why Paul uh, gives this example. And so Paul reveals, you know, not only should we steer clear of our lustful flesh and idolatry, but remember, when we don't, God will judge. God will deal with those who do it. When we don't practice the principle of knowledge must be balanced by love, then we're going to have problems. Well, Paul is warning those who don't exercise their Christian liberties properly to learn from Israel's bad example. Uh, and now notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. Now all these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Once again, Paul shares this bad example of Israel, and it was written for a purpose, for our admonition. It was written that we would learn, that we could see, hey, this is the way you shouldn't do it. Learn from their bad example. Don't follow in the path that they walked. Now, one of the reasons someone would not take this warning to heart is because they don't think that they actually have a problem. They don't think they're vulnerable to these sins. (laughs) Oh, idolatry, I'd never do that. Oh, lust, I've totally overcome those things. And so if you don't recognize you're vulnerable, when someone presents a warning to you of, hey, beware, don't go down this road, don't participate in this, you kind of just block that out, like, oh, I'd never do that anyway. You know, what's the big deal? And so Paul, within that, gives them a warning for that mindset. He says in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For the Corinthian Christians to be willing to resist temptation, they first need to recognize they have the capacity to fall. They have the capacity to sin in these different ways. And don't just think, oh, I would never fall in that. I'm, stand strong. I'm a, you know, strong believer and there's no sin that could ever, you know, thwart me or cause me to fall into it. Paul's saying, oh, no, no, that is not the mindset you want to have because it's not a biblical one. So, when you think there's no area of your life that, you know, you you can't fall, or there's a specific area of your life you can't fall, you become vulnerable, and that's when you're more likely to fall. You see, when you have a weakness, most of us, when we recognize that weakness, we do things to protect ourselves. We see that, okay, I'm weak here, I struggle with this temptation to sin, and because of that, I'm going to do things to protect myself from falling into those things. You put yourself on guard against that temptation. Now, If you have the mindset of, I could never fall into that sin, I would never do that sin, all of a sudden, there's not really that same desire and motivation to protect yourself because you don't think you need protection. Uh, And so, oh, I'd never fall into that. And so there's no wall up. There's no protection up. There's nothing that you're seeking to do to keep yourself from those temptations, to keep yourself from falling into those sins. And actually, when that happens, you're actually putting yourself in a place where you're more likely to fall, where you're more likely to sin because you've stopped protecting yourself because you don't think that you need it. Many years ago, I went to a conference with a pastor friend of mine, and, you know, during the conference, there was a, a challenge within it for uh, us pastors to take steps to protect ourselves, especially from lustful things, from pornography, you know, and they say, you know, just be wise. First of all, never spend any alone time, just you and another woman, you know, any woman besides your wife you shouldn't be alone with. Protect yourself in that way. They gave some software to put on computers, you know, put this on there, protect yourself from, you know, adult websites and different things that could just draw you in and that could cause you temptation to fall. And, you know, after that, there was a group of us and we we're just like, you know, this was a good challenge. This is great advice. There's a lot of great practical things because we don't want to be. One of those pastors who falls in this way. And I remember one of the guys who was there just like was so adamant, you know, this was a waste of our time. I would never fall in this. You know, I've overcome this. I'm so spiritual now that this isn't an issue for me. You know, this would be never an area where I would fall. And I found it interesting a few years later to find out that he was a man who actually cheated on his wife with his secretary. He never put anything into practice to say, you know what, I'm not going to spend alone time with her. He did it all the time because, oh, I'm I'm never falling in this area. I'd never do that. And he thought he was so strong in this area that he didn't protect himself. And unfortunately, he ended up falling into sin because of it. You know, temptation kind of works like rocks in a harbor. When the tide is low, all the boats can see the rocks. They can see the danger. They can avoid the danger. But when the tide rises, the danger is covered. And that's when the boats hit the rocks because they don't even see that they're there. They don't recognize it. And for us, I think that's what Satan often wants to do. He wants to, to raise the tide. He doesn't want us to see the temptation and the dangers. And he wants us to get to that place where, oh, I could never fall in that way. I can never sin in that way. And he's like, great. That's exactly where I want you to be because you don't recognize how dangerous it is and how easy it's going to be for me to direct you right into those rocks and destroy your life. And so we need to be very Cautious of this and always be recognizing we have a sinful flesh and it's wise to protect yourself. And that's what's really more spiritual. It's not more spiritual to to claim that I would never fail in a certain way. Adam Clark, a great commentator, said, The highest saint under heaven can stand no longer than he depends upon God and continues in the obedience of faith. He that ceased to do so will fall into sin and great. And get a darkened understanding and a hardened heart. When we're not depending on God, all of us are susceptible to so many sins. And and that's the recognition that we need to have. In and of our own strength, in and of ourselves, we don't have the strength to resist all the bombardment that comes our way. And so we need to stay connected to Jesus, recognizing our dependence on him is what helps us overcome these things. Well, now Paul's going to share something very important about temptations and uh, a wonderful, wonderful verse if you're ever dealing with temptations, which we all do. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul here shares three important things about temptation. Three things, if you're taking note, I encourage you to write down, to remember. The first thing that Paul shares with us is that all of us go through very similar temptations. Notice what he says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. The temptations that we face, the temptations that we go to are common to all of us. You know, how many of you ever thought I'm the only one dealing with this particular issue? I'm the only one struggling with this sin. No one can understand and relate to what I'm going through because I'm the only one dealing with it. I know in my Christian life there have been times where I felt that way. You know, I'm just the only one who struggles with this temptation or this sin and, and no one understands and no one gets it. No one can, can, you know, understand where I'm coming from. But as I started opening up to other believers and other believers started opening up to me, I came to the realization of, oh, wow, there's a lot of other people going through these same things that I thought I was the only one struggling with. I remember going to a men's meeting. The topic was temptations that men face. And we talked about all sorts of different temptations. And then we broke up into small groups. And one of the things that was just so evident as men started to share was they were blown away, like this amazement, like, you struggle with that too? Wow, you struggle with that too? And because all of the guys were in this place thinking, you know what, I'm the only one who deals with this. I'm the only one who struggles with this. And around this table, everyone realized, oh, every single one of us are dealing with these different issues. This isn't unique to me. This is something that all of us are dealing with. And it was was good. It was good to recognize because one of Satan's lies is, oh, that's just something that you deal with and you can't tell anybody. You should be ashamed of that. No one else is going to understand because you're the only one who struggles with that sin. Uh, And it's such a lie. And the reality is if you go around and you were to share with people today some of your issues, you would find out that other people have not only struggled with those, but especially if they've walked with the Lord longer, they have come to a victory over that. The Lord has walked them and helped them. Them through it and they can help you uh, discover that as well and so first of all understand all of us go through very similar temptations the second thing to note is that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able what a wonderful promise this is God's not going to allow you or I to be tempted beyond what we're able to handle Well, how can God protect us from temptation so that we can handle them? You know, you get bombarded with these things and we're so often feeling like, I can't handle this, I struggle so much with this. So what can God do to make it so that I can handle it? Well, that's the third thing we need to note about temptation. God provides for us a way to escape our temptations. Paul says, but with the temptation, God will also make the way of escape that you may be able to. To bear it. What wonderful news. When you're faced with some difficult temptation, and maybe it's something that you've struggled with for a while, or maybe it's something fresh and new, and you're wanting to give into it, God clearly says, I will make a way of escape. I'm going to give you a way of escape, why, so that you can bear the temptation, so you'll be able to say no, so that you'll be able to resist. There's going to be a way that you can escape it instead of indulge in it, to not do it instead of to give in to it. And God provides that with every single temptation that we face. So if you face a temptation that you can't handle, guess what? God's going to provide the way for you to escape it so you will be able to to handle it. But something we need to understand is that God only provides the way of escape. He doesn't force us to take it. And that's really one of our biggest problems. The way of escape is always there because God says, I'm faithful to do it. And we know that when he says he's faithful, that means he will always provide what he says he will provide. So there's a way of escape for every temptation that we face. Our issue isn't that there's not the way. Our issue is that we don't take it. We're not willing to look for it and we're not willing to accept it oftentimes. And that's why it's problematic because that way only benefits you if you use it. How many of you have given an excuse for your temptation, something like this, the situation was too tempting, I just couldn't handle it. Or the temptation was just too strong, there was nothing I could do to resist it. I know in my Christian life I've used those excuses thinking, you know, I'm justified, I mean it was just too difficult to overcome, there was just no possible way I could resist this. Well, according to this scripture, that's not true. That no matter how difficult, no matter how tempting, God will always give us a way of escape so that we can bear it. So that we don't give in to these temptations. The key is, are we going to choose to use it? So we don't fall because there's no way out. We fall because we're not looking for the way out. Or many times, we don't want the way out. We want to give in to it. That's why it's tempting. We want it. And so it's like, Lord, I I see the path to resist. I see the path to get away, but I'm not taking it because I want to indulge in this sin. And so we just willfully go for it. I mean, that's just a reality for us. We could say we wish that wasn't true, but all of us are guilty of willfully choosing sinful things. Why? Because it's something that we like. That's why it's tempting. And so we need to be very aware that the escape route is there, but we have to see it and we have to use it or it does us no good. Horatio Palmer wrote an old hymn entitled Yield Not to Temptation. The words of this hymn were inspired by 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The hymn says this, Yield not to temptation for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he'll carry you through. Shun evil companions, bad language, disdain. God's name hold in reverence, nor take it in vain. Be thoughtful and earnest, kind-hearted and true. Look ever to Jesus, he'll carry you through. To him that overcometh, God giveth a crown. Though through faith we shall conquer, though often cast down. He who is our savior, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus, he'll carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. I love that the continual emphasis of the reality of what's going to get you through temptation, it's not your strength, it's not your ability, it's not something in you, it's recognizing Jesus is the one who will carry you, Jesus is the one who provides the way, Jesus is the one who will enable it, and if you don't look to him and don't depend on him, you're going to continually fall into temptation, that's just a reality. But if you do look to him and you do depend on him, you can find victory over these temptations that come to your life. In chapter 8, Paul shared with us one of the Christian liberties that they were struggling with was whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And now Paul's going to share something sinful that ultimately that liberty was leading to. Let's see what he says in verses 14 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Paul starts off really with the the challenge here and then he's going to expound upon it to try to give them an understanding of what he's trying to say. But the first initial warning is, therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. As we already noted, he already gave two examples of Israel that we shouldn't follow. One of those examples was idolatry and the challenge then as well was flee from it. Don't do it. Don't, Don't participate in it. Well, these verses that Paul gives us here shares with us that Part of the problem with these Corinthian Christians who were exercising this liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols is it went too far and they started participating in the ceremonies of idol worship and actually started worshiping idols themselves. And so Paul wants to use two pictures, a picture of communion and a picture of the Old Testament sacrifices to help the Corinthians see that what you eat can be connected to worship. Now let's think about that. Paul starts off with two questions about communion. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? When we celebrate communion, we have our juice or some wine, and we have bread, and both of them are are symbolic of what Christ has done. But when we partake of that, we are not only remembering what Christ did, but we are worshiping him for who he is and what he's done. As we partake of these things, it's an act of worship to Christ, and it's a good thing. We want to worship him, and this reminds us of exactly what he did to sacrifice himself for our sins. And when we're all consuming this same bread it connects us together and that's why it's important we, we we partake of communion corporately you can do it privately as well but as we take it corporately there's there's a connection and a unity of all of us worshiping Christ and remembering what he's done together and that's why he goes on to say in verse 17 for we though many are one bread and one body for we all partake of that one bread and so there there brings that unity and worship to Jesus which is great Well, now he's going to give us another example, the example of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He says, Observe, O Israel, after the flesh, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now, if you go through the sacrificial system, you'll see that there's all sorts of different sacrifices that you can offer to God for different reasons. And one of the sacrifices that you could bring was called a peace offering. And with the peace offering, you would have to bring an unblemished animal. And you would bring it to the priest to sacrifice it on your behalf. And as the priest would you know, dissect this animal before he would place it on the altar, he was given the breast of the animal and the front, uh, right, right foreleg of the animal. The fat, the kidney, and the liver were given to God. They were placed on the altar and they were consumed with fire. And then the rest of the animal was given to the person who brought it. And they would eat it in participation to partake in this sacrifice to God. And so they're consuming this in an act of worship. They're coming for this peace offering. The priest gets some of the food. They get some of the animal to eat. They both consume it, and there's this act of worship as they're eating this to God. Now, the reason that Paul brings both of these up with communion and the Old Testament sacrificial system is he's trying to help them understand the connection with during these ceremonies, like if you just go eat some bread and juice at home, there's no connection to Jesus and worship. But when you're doing it in the ceremony of communion, and that's the purpose of eating those things, then there is a connection to worship. You just go eat your lamb at home and you're not bringing it to the priest to sacrifice it. It's just a good meal. You bring it to the priest and you give him a portion and they sacrifice a portion to the Lord and you eat a portion, all of a sudden you're a part of this ceremony that now brings with it worship to God. Paul's helping them understand that connection because in that pagan culture, they did the same thing to worship idols. They sacrificed animals and ate of that animal in worship to the idols that they were, you know, worshiping. And so as you participate in that uh, that, um, ceremony and you eat within that ceremony, there is a connection to the idolatry that was taking place. And so this is something that, you know, some of these Corinthian Christians, they weren't just eating the meat sacrificed to idol at their home. They started going into these ceremonies, and they started participating in, ultimately, what is idol worship. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verses 19 through 22, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the thing which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, if you remember in chapter 8, Paul revealed to us idols are nothing. They're not real. They don't have any real power. And so, you know, there was that aspect of recognizing that, you know, they're worshiping something that isn't Real, But there is something that is truly real within idol worship, and that is the de- demonic presence that's there. You know, there is an aspect of uh, idolatry, openly, uh, Paul says, opens a person up to fellowship with demons. And so Paul says, you know, when you participate in this ceremony, when you're a part of all of this and you're consuming this meat in participation of this ceremony, you're ultimately opening yourself up to fellowship with demons because they're really behind this idolatry and this idol worship. And that's obviously not something that Christians should be a part of. And so Paul says in verse 21, you can't drink of the cup of the Lord, speaking of communion, and the cup of demons. You can't participate at the Lord's table once again of communion and the table of demons. They can't go hand in hand. You can't go, hey, Sunday, we're going to have this wonderful communion service and we're going to have the the wine and the bread and we're going to remember Jesus and we're going to worship him. And then, hey, Monday, we're going to go to the temple and we're going to, you know, be a part of this, you know, worship of this idol and we're going to eat this meat and we're going to be a part of that whole ceremony. He says, no, no, no. That should never be something that we as Christians partake in. Because ultimately, it's in participation in idol worship. And then Paul goes on to say, hey, are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? We know that God doesn't want us to be worshiping anything but him. Uh, And so as believers, that should never be something that we do. Well, now Paul's going to share with us a second principle concerning our Christian liberties. In verse 23, he tells us what it is. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. You know, oftentimes when it comes to our Christian liberties, the question that we only ask is, am I at liberty to do this or not? And Paul's saying that really shouldn't be the only question you ask. The real question is, is this liberty good for me? Is it helpful? Does it edify? Not just am I at liberty to do it, but if I do it, does it help me and does it edify me? The Corinthian mindset was, if I'm at liberty to do it, then I'm going to indulge in it. And it didn't seem like they were actually asking the question of, well, if I do indulge in it, is it going to help? Is it going to edify? Is there going to be something that is good that I'm going to get from it? The second important principle we need to follow when exercising our Christian liberties is only exercise liberties that are helpful and edify both you and others, When we're about to exercise a Christian liberty, a great question to ask is, if I do this, is it going to help me, and is it going to help others? If I do this, is it going to edify me, and is it going to edify others? And if the answer is no, then that should be a clear sign of, don't pursue this. Don't do it. If it's not helpful, and it's not edifying to me or others, then I shouldn't partake in it. Paul goes on to say in verse 24, Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. You know, when it came to their liberties, really the Corinthians were just focused on themselves. You know, I have liberty to do this. It's my right. I'll do what I want. And it didn't really concern them of how this impacted other people, how this maybe negatively impacted other people. They weren't considering how their actions were harming others. And just because something is fine for me does not mean I should do it. Because in doing it, it might not be fine for someone else. And we need to keep that in mind as we are pursuing these different Christian liberties. So when exercising our Christian liberty, we shouldn't just be seeking what we want. We should be considering, how will my liberty affect others? So when it comes to our liberty, we need to ask the question, will my liberty be helpful and edifying to me and to other people? And if the answer is no, just make it real clear and easy for you. Just don't do it. Follow that principle. If it's not going to edify, it's not going to be helpful, don't do it. Well, Paul has shared that the Corinthians shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols during that idolatry ceremony, but what happens if you have some of that meat in your home or you go to a restaurant and they serve that meat? Well, what should you do then? Well, Paul's going to give some practical uh, advice on that. Because remember back in chapter eight, the pagan priest in the daytime is getting so much meat because he got a portion of every sacrifice he gave. He can't eat all that. So he would take a portion of that. He would sell it to restaurants at a good deal. He'd sell it to the meat market at a good deal. And so there was a lot of meat in the meat markets and meat at restaurants that had previously been sacrificed to idols. So it existed a lot in Corinth and you might get some of it as you buy meat. You go over to Kroger and you pick up a steak you don't realize it's been sacrificed to idols, but it has been. Or you go to a restaurant, you get a nice piece of meat, you don't realize it's been sacrificed to idols, but it has been. So so what do you do with that? Should you just never eat meat again? Should you just avoid it altogether? Well, Paul is going to give a practical answer here in verses 25 through 30. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I... I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks. So, Paul gives just some practical advice here. If you're going to go to the meat market and you're going to buy meat, or you're going to go to a restaurant and you're going to get meat, when you're buying meat, or when you're over someone's house and they serve you meat, don't ask where it came from. Don't say, hey, was this sacrificed to idols? Just leave it alone. And then if you never know, your conscience isn't going to have an issue. And, you know, there's not going to be a problem. And Paul goes on to say, you know, it's perfectly fine to do that. And he quotes Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and all of its fullness. Basically what Paul is saying, Hey, the cow belongs to the Lord when it was grazing the field. It belongs to the Lord now that it's on the barbecue. The meat isn't the issue. It's not like it's demon-possessed meat or something. The problem is the ceremony that goes with it that you were partaking in. That's what brought idolatry. Eating the meat doesn't do anything. So if you're just eating it at someone's house or eating it at a restaurant, it's not going to defile you. It's not going to be bad for you. There's no problem there. The problem is your conscience. And so if you ask, was this sacrifice to idols, then your conscience could be hurt because they might say, yes, so just don't say anything. But then he goes on to say, well, if someone does tell you and they want you to know, hey, I'm serving you this great deal. I got this filet mignon and I got a great deal. But you know why? Because it was sacrificed to idols. He says, you know what? If you find out it's been sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it for two reasons. Your own conscience, but also for that person, because you don't want to stumble them in any way. So you make a choice when you recognize that it has been sacrificed to idols, even though you're at liberty to eat it. It's not going to hurt you in any way. You make a choice not to for the sake of loving others so that you wouldn't stumble anyone or hinder anyone from accepting the gospel through it. And so that's his practical advice. You can eat it as long as no one says anything, but if someone brings it up and both of you are clear that it was sacrificed to idols, make a choice not to do it just so there's no way you're stumbling or hindering people in that. Well, now Paul's going to give us the third Practical thing we need to understand and apply when it comes to Christian liberties. He tells us in verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you're eating something, whether you're drinking something, actually let's just include anything that you're doing, Paul says. Make sure you do it to the glory of God. The third principle we should follow when exercising Christian liberties is do everything to the glory of God. You see, the purpose of our lives is not to indulge ourselves in all the things that we want. The purpose of our lives ultimately is we want to bring glory to God through all we do. And if that's truly your heart, that's truly your purpose, then the way in which you conduct yourself with Christian liberties. Would change. Imagine the Corinthian believers, if they actually put this into practice, they wouldn't have had these issues with meat sacrificed to idols because it would ultimately say, I want to do everything I can to glorify God. It's not about me and my desires and my wants and my hunger or whatever their you know reasoning was. Ultimately I want to glorify God, and if anything I'm doing isn't gonna glorify God, then I'm not gonna do it. Because that is my heart and that is what's gonna drive my decision making. So another question we need to ask ourselves when it comes to our liberties is what will I'm about to do glorify God? And Once again, if the answer is no, it's simple. Don't do it. Is it helpful? Is it edify? No, don't do it. Will it glorify God? No, don't do it. That, that should be the, the the thing that guides and directs us. Well, Paul now concludes all of this kind of with a summary of what he's been saying in chapters 8, 9, and now 10, he says, This give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Paul's made very clear we have a lot of Christian liberties. But at the end of the day, there are two groups you want to be very careful about as we exercise our Christian liberties in front of them. And so he says, give no offense, speaking of unbelieving Jews or Greeks, don't give an offense to them that would hinder them from accepting the gospel, and give no offense to believers in the church of God. He brings up those same two groups again that we would recognize as we exercise our Christian liberties, we should realize we can do it in a way that would offend, that would stumble, that would hinder. And so that needs to be something that we recognize and love them enough to say no, if that's going to be well the result of that. And once again, Paul reminds us, hey, this is something he practiced himself. All of chapter 9, he gives a big example of how he did this, but he reminds us again, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Ultimately, these three principles that Paul reveals to us, that he challenges us to partake in and to follow, are things that Jesus did. Jesus was completely others-centered. His love for the world is what caused him to give up the greatest liberty of all, his life. And he sacrificed his life on the cross for our sins. He exercised liberties that were helpful and edified. And ultimately, he did everything to the glory of the Father. That was his reasoning. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way that we can, you know, redeem mankind, yet not my will. But yours. I'm here to bring glory to you in all that I do. We see this through Jesus' life. He was the perfect example of these three things. And Paul was ultimately following the example of Jesus, and that's why he says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Christ is the example of this, and I'm now following him, and I'm going to challenge you to now follow me as I follow Jesus. And what a bold statement, especially from someone proclaiming a message like Paul was, because too often we have the message of do as I say, not as I do. I mean, how often can you really say to someone, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus? You'll be good if you just follow the way I live my life, if you just follow the pattern, the way that I do things, the way that I speak, you know, you're know, you going to be good because I am so uh, much in following the example of Jesus that if you follow me, that'll be great. You know, most of us are like, you know what, I know what the Bible says in this area, and you should do what Jesus did, but don't follow my example because I'm not doing what Jesus did. Uh, and so, you know, but Paul got to this place where he practiced what he preached. And I think God wants us in every area of life to grow to the place where we can say, you know what, I want to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Follow my example, not, well, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it, but I'm encouraging you to do it. You know, hey, the, the church world needs to see it's possible. Oh, you you can have a wonderful marriage. Well, they want to see a wonderful marriage. Oh, you you can be faithful in relationship. They want to see that. Well, you you can love your enemies. People want to see that. They don't want it to be told, do it. They want to see someone actually doing it so they can recognize, wow, it's possible. And Paul wonderfully is able to say, hey, I'm doing this. You can look at my life. I'm putting these things into practice. I've shown it to you. Now I'm encouraging you. It's possible. Imitate me just as I also imitate Jesus. So in verse chapters 8 through 10, we've discovered when you're faced with this Christian liberty, whatever it may be, there's four questions that I want you to ask yourself. And if you ask yourself these four questions, I think you will be able to see very clearly whether or not you should do it. Number one, will my liberty cause another believer to stumble? The answer is yes. That's all you have to ask. You're done. Don't do it. Number two. Will my liberty hinder an unbeliever from accepting the gospel? If the answer is yes, don't do it. Number three, will my liberty be helpful and edifying to me and others? If the answer is no, don't do it. And finally, will my liberty glorify God? If the answer is no, don't do it. Simple. Ask these four questions. If you get any of these answers, then it's clear. God doesn't want me to pursue this, to exercise this, to do it. And if we will do that, we won't have the issues that the Corinthians Dead. let's pray father <clears throat> we are grateful for your patience with us for your mercy for your grace lord we so often give in to temptation we're so often like the israelites and like the corinthians and given into lusts and putting other things before you and just being selfish lord and i pray that you would help us as we think of the liberties that we have and the way that we often exercise those in a selfish way, that you would help us to take heed to your word and what you've declared and uh, that you would help us to be those that follow your example and that we truly would be looking for other people's interests more important than our own, that we would be considering glory to you and whether these things are helpful and edifying and uh, just help us, God, because we don't want to be the stumbling block for someone. We don't want to be the hindrance to someone, Lord. Uh, And I just pray that you would help us to see that we can be uh, through our actions and our words if we're not wise uh, in what we do. And so I pray that you would help us grow, uh, forgive us when we fail, um, and just continue to um, change us, Lord, to be more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know that Robert Crabtree has spent the last nine months in Guatemala, and uh, lots of wonderful things have transpired. And so I've asked him to come up and share for a little bit about uh, what the Lord's taught him and what transpired there and what God did. And so uh, let's just welcome him, and he's going to give us a nice little... You can clap for him. Come on.
1: Good morning. Um, there's actually like several of y'all that I don't know. So hello, I'm Robert. Um, hello. And uh, just like to let y'all know, I was in this year-long missionary program called Ignite. And it's with Pottersfield Ministries. So it's three months in Guatemala for just discipleship and just um, that training in our own hearts, as well as six months in a field location. So several, five of us stayed in Guatemala. Uh, There was four that went to an Indian reservation in Montana, uh, five that went to Kenya, and a total of seven that went to Cambodia. And after that, it's a month in Montana just for reentry and just to exactly see what the Lord has done. And one thing we can all say, and especially myself, is that it's going to take a while longer until we can actually fully realize just how powerful the Lord was in our locations, especially Guatemala. Um, just two things I, I really want to share. and It's my favorite part of Guatemala, but also what one of the biggest lessons I've learned from the Lord. And the favorite part was definitely the schools and just being with all those kids. Um, grand total of all the schools, uh, the five of us plus um, uh, RA, like a staff member, and this one member of um, a family that live on property. Um, So seven of us, we had about 1,200 kids in total throughout the week that we uh, taught and just taught English and also ministered to because we also had Bible class. And it was just awesome. Um, It was was really good. Our kids' club was around 100 at most um, kids, uh, every once in a while, I'd get up to around 120, and most of the time, it would stay at around 80. And just the intimacy of that time was amazing. So the Lord's really blessed me in being able to be at the same location for nine months instead of just six. So with that, we already got to know some of the kids while we were there for training, and the other six months allowed us to get an even um, deeper relationship with them. And it's just beautiful what the Lord's done. One of the things I've learned is the Lord is always in the process of uh, restoration. And with many of the families over there, uh, many of the kids go through extreme home lives that we couldn't imagine, or most of us couldn't imagine. And just being just a small little light for them, uh, that's just a big blessing, mainly on our part's. And we we get to be that light that the Lord's called us to be. And through that, we've been blessed. And thankfully, with the Lord's help, we've been able to bless others as well. So being able to see many kids get fed um, in Cambodia, a lot of times, and Kenya, is some of the only food that they would get. Um, It's just a big blessing. It's amazing. Um, Just so many kids. I think the... Um, Pastor Mike Rosell, he oversees all of partisan Ministries. I um, believe he said that there's a total of 18,000 kids around the world that get fed and get that um, care and all that stuff. Um, I'm in Class 11 of Ignite and Class 12. I was there for their training in Guatemala. Um, seven of them went to Uganda, and that was a really big group to Uganda. But it's because at their kids' club on Saturday, Um, they have around a thousand kids and what's really awesome is that each one of them get fed and each one of them really importantly gets a Bible lesson and get to worship. And that's just the biggest blessing. Um, many, many kids, uh, have been able to get close to my heart and it's just, it's amazing to come back and still have that memory, but that memory kind of goes to waste if I don't use that memory for prayer reasons and just to pray on their behalf and always keep them in my thoughts and in my prayers. And then once I do that, that relationship or that, um, the intimacy that I had with many of them, then it goes a long way. So we c- It's kind of hard to have a shallow relationship while it's still being intimate, it needs to be just a little bit deeper. And that was great to have with many of the kids. And one of the biggest lessons I had is that um, just being faithful to the Lord and actually just being able to recognize and see His power. Um, one thing that hit me like not too long ago is that just how amazing the Lord is. Um, to those who are going through rough situations... Um, You can look at Mark 6, when Jesus, like when his disciples and Jesus were in the boat, and they told him that, you know, it was pretty crazy and stuff. And he just said, peace be still, and the seas broke. And um, many situations in Guatemala were really stressful for all of us, because a lot of health reasons, a lot of health problems were going on throughout all of us. Um, One guy had to come home and my team in team guat for a month because of his back and luckily didn't have to get a spinal fusion but i was still pretty bad but he's a lot better now uh, one girl has as and this uh, version of als and gradually her body just is degrading more and more and she's only 21 but like the lord has just really spoken to her through that um Margot just got sick with every single thing you could think of. Um, and another one, pretty much the wow. same thing. And for myself, it was uh, every a probably the same thing. Um, we were just all getting sick. But being able to see the Lord just say, hey, peace, be still. And there's, there was no greater blessing than having just a week stuck in bed, being able to just spend time in the Word, spend time with Jesus, and just read about what it has for me. And... We need to take that time, and that time was just probably the most beautiful time of field time um, besides the kids, but also just seeing how if you are just stagnant and which we've all been at times, um, we could all be stagnant really easily in our walk with the lord he's really he is faithful to just stir it up a bit and it actually reminded me um what. Pastor Matt just spoke on when Jesus parted the Red Sea. He's able to take a raging sea and say, Peace be still in it stills. But he's able to take a sea that's in that's a challenge for you and just to like part it for you. And just God has all different levels of power. But all those power, like all that power, that's our God. And we have access to that anytime we want, but we need to take that time. And it was just it was a great, it was a great nine months. I'm still working through all of it. Um, one just memory that I just can't get out of my mind, this one girl named Marisol. Um, at San Felipe is the last of our seven schools. Um, it was on Friday, uh, and that was, I had two first grade classes at that school and a third grade class. So I was talking to this one kid. It was like their test day, and she just came like I don't know what she was saying, but she took my hand and just like dragged me to where her seat was. And she pointed, and there's a spider on the ground. So I was like, "Oh my goodness, you want me to kill that spider?" And it was just like the (laughs) cutest thing. Um, But just like little things like that. At the same school, there's this one little girl, and she was really hard to get to um, as far as just intimacy and. I'm pretty, most likely, she has like many things just going on in her family life um, back at home because she just didn't want to get like close to anyone. It seemed like she would like say like, no, 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 and like stuff like that. And the last day I was able, like, with someone's help for talking, um, because she spoke Spanish, um, I was able to have somewhat of a conversation with her just about how much, you know, how important Jesus is and how much we need Jesus and we need the Lord in our lives. And that was the first time that she let any of us hug her. And just something like that, something small with those kids goes a long way. And it's Jesus that said, let the little children come unto me. And the face of those kids, that's one thing that I'm definitely going to hold. And it's one thing they just need to pray for always, because a lot of them don 't know Jesus, and that was only twelve that was only twelve hundred that 's not the thousand in uganda it 's not the thousands in Cambodia, even Browning Montana um, just so much alcoholism and so much uh, drug addiction just break just they just break apart the family, and the four girls over there um One time, like they just—they were in constant battle with the enemy, but they got the most time with the Lord, and they got to minister to—I think around eighteen kids. But it's those eighteen kids that the Lord cares about, because the Lord cares about the one that goes astray versus the ninety-nine. And God's just so good. God is so good. So, biggest lesson is just. Recognize the Lord's power and just want to use it, too. Um, just one quick example. Um, was it? Uh, we got taught a lot um, by Pastor Don McClure. So we got, I think, a total of eight to 11 um, kind of like sessions with him. One example that I gave is that um, many Christians, you know, because we are meant to be the light of the world. And once you are a Christian, you are a light. But just think about where you are. And many Christians like to huddle together because it's a night bright spot. But if you're a street light, you need to be out in like the, a darker place. But when you're in a place like that, you can't really see that much around you. So sometimes it is like a little bit freaky because you don't know what's, you know, 50, 100, 200 feet away. But a mile, two miles away from you, someone can still see that light. And just really focus on just being that light that you're called to be. Um, Because Jesus is the one that called us to it, and we need to be faithful in that. So, Guatemala was spectacular.
0: Well, that is a great report. Let's just thank the Lord for what he did. Father, we are so thankful that you love people so much. And it's just wonderful to hear what you did personally in Robert's life, what you taught him, how you used him, Lord, but just how many, so many people were impacted, Lord, not only in Guatemala, Lord, in Kenya and Cambodia and other places, Lord, we're just so thankful for this Ignite group, this ministry, Lord, that Pottersfield Ministry has, and we just pray for your continual blessing upon it. Uh, we pray that more and more people would come, Lord, that they'd be used by you that they'd give up their time, give a year of their life uh, to go and serve you in a way that would just make a, a lifelong impact in others' lives, Lord. And we just pray for these kids uh, that have been touched, Lord, kids that you know come from such difficult backgrounds, Lord, them. The ones that came to know you, Lord, we are so grateful for that. But those who are still struggling with accepting that, God, we just pray that you would continue to bring those lights, Lord, those people who would love them and reveal you to them and that they would open up their heart and that they would come to know you. Uh, but we are just so grateful for your faithfulness, Lord, uh, and just to hear the report uh, of what you've done in this last year. Uh, and it's just wonderful. Uh, we're excited, Lord. And just help us as Robert wants to, Lord, but help us as a fellowship to remember This ministry in prayer, to remember these kids in prayer, uh, to not just uh, forget. Lord, but to recognize that uh, we can still be a part of this work uh, through our prayers, Lord. And so uh, we just thank you uh, for what you do, uh, what you've done. Uh, And Lord, we want to see you do great things here in this area as well. Uh, And we want to be a part of that. And let us take the challenge that Robert gave, Lord, of the fact that we are lights, Lord, and that we would seek to be used by you in a great and powerful way and to trust that you have the power that is needed to reach uh, a culture that is lost. And so we love you. We're grateful uh, for who you are, and we just pray that you help us be more like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.